0: I'd like to pray, uh, we will be in Revelation, pray this blessing from the book of Revelation over the reading of the word. And it's Revelation 1 and verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed these things which are written in it. For the time is near. Man, I love that. For the time is near. And so how much more near are we today um good morning uh you know i'm sure i don't have to convince many of y'all or 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 persuade anyone that we live in dark uh, maybe uncertain but if nothing else we live in strange times Um, i don't think i'd have to persuade any of y'all of that strange times and i'm not even talking or alluding to the pandemic or anything else we've gone through for the past one or two years. I'm not speaking of any of that at all. More specifically, I'm speaking about the way our culture views God, the way our culture views Christianity, the way our culture views Christ, the worldview that around us of the existence of God and so as we debate as we discuss other with other believers our friends our family our co-workers that we discuss these things I think a lot of times in our circles we look at and think are we living in a post-christian nation in a in a a post-christian time are we watching the Judeo-Christian culture or worldview collapse around us and so I think these are strange times and I think a strange thing is occurring. And as these times are getting stranger, there's sightings, well let me say, not their sightings, but there's looming strange ideas. And around those strange ideas, there's a strange creature developing. And by strange creature, I know we've watched the news and heard stuff about aliens and all that crazy stuff too, and that's not about this either. Or, or Bigfoot or anything like that, but there is a strange creature in our culture right now. Um, And honestly, to find the words to even say this is even impossible. It's a strange creature with a strange conservative orthodox. And the strangeness actually has names. And the names of these men are men like James Lindsay. Anybody heard of James Lindsay? Okay, yeah. So good, I'm glad. Jordan Peterson, Douglas Murray. Okay, good. What makes this so strange is these men are taking the helm to defend the Christian worldview and none of them are what we would classify as distinctly Christian men. That's a strange creature. None, non-Christians defending Christianity. Lindsay is an atheist. He's a mathematician and philosopher. Peterson is a psychologist out of Canada and remarkably he defends the Judeo-Christian worldview against atheists. Douglas Murray is self-described as a gay Christian atheist. You can Wikipedia that. That's actually what it says. He's a gay Christian atheist. Well, he's gay. He's a Christian. He comes from an Anglican, I believe a evangelical Anglican uh, background. His parents were conservative Christians. And so he believes the Christian worldview is, that is the worldview to have, and he defends it. He's he's gay, he's not gonna give up his life, but he knows in his heart that Christianity is true. And let me say this, this is aside, and I don't wanna take too much time, but this is remarkable, and this is for all of us men in the room, because I found that remarkable because I read his book, The Madness of Crowds, where he pushes back the godless, and, and um, secular agendas and woke agendas. And as I read it, I, I trembled because I thought, this is the most remarkable thing I've ever read, that the gay Christian atheist has taken the battlefield for us, against the Philistine. And that brought shame to my heart. That's not his battlefield to take, that's ours, as Christian men, to push back against the godless culture. Side note, Um, that's an indictment. But let me summarize all that I've said, that these are men defending the Christian worldview who don't have a committed relationship to Jesus Christ. Well, almost prophetically, Francis Schaeffer spoke of this creature. He actually spoke of this creature decades ago. He observed that the meaning of the word Christian has been reduced to practically nothing because the word Christian as a symbol has been made to mean so little He said, it's come to mean everything, and it's come to mean nothing. What is a Christian? But let's be clear, though the world may be confused about what a Christian is, the Bible isn't. Many things characterize Christians, including number one, a healthy fear of God, 2 Corinthians 7, Philippians 2, 1 Peter 1, a desire to imitate, to follow, Ephesians 5, 1 John 2, Holiness, Matthew 5, 2 Corinthians 7. I know I'm just rattling these off, but I just want to support that. And amongst other things, purity, faith, obedience, John 10, 14, 15, Romans 1, Romans 16, Hebrews 5, 1 John 3. So say all that to say, it's crystal clear that there are certain characteristics of a Christian, and let me read those off without the verses so Fear of God, desire to imitate and follow, holiness, purity, faith, and obedience. But without a doubt, the supreme characteristic of a Christian is love for his Lord. It's the number one characteristic of a Christian, is love for Jesus Christ. It's crystal clear, loving the Lord is everything. Because after all, demons believe and they're orthodox. Demons tremble and they have emotion. They believe and they tremble, faith and emotion, but they don't love Jesus. So the hallmark of a Christian is love. The Bible is clear in no uncertain terms. When Jesus himself was challenged to name the single greatest commandment of the law, he replied, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. This is the greatest and foremost command, commandment. So when he's addressing his followers, his intimate group, he challenged his disciples to put love for him as the greatest priority. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. So the greatest commandment that Jesus spoke of is to love the Lord your God. The greatest priority of the Christian is to love him more than any other relationship. To finalize that, when Jesus himself sought to discern the spiritual condition of one of his sheep that had gone astray, he asks him, point blank, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Not enough to say one, ask them again, do you love me? Ask them again. Do you love me Christianity therefore is primarily and ultimately believing loving following say loving a person and that person is Jesus so I don't know if we have the the text do we have it okay if we can put the text up our text this morning will be from Revelation 2 verses 1 through 7 Okay, good. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false, Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who overcomes, I think this translation says conquers, I, I like the word overcomes, Conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So at the outset, let me say that I know the book of Revelation is not uh, one that is commonly preached or studied. I think, honestly, it holds the unique place in Christianity as the least studied book, but probably the most talked about, (laughs) right? I just thought of that one night when I was doing this. I was like, man, everybody talks about this book, but who really reads it? And how often do you preach? Unless you're like John MacArthur or something that you spend three years in it, most people really don't, or Piper, you really don't get into this book. But it's kind of like the late Winston Churchill said of the Soviet Union, and I heard this not that long ago. Did anybody know that quote? I know, okay. Late Winston Churchill said of the Soviet Union that it was a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside of an enigma. I'd venture to say that's how most people think of the book of Revelation, right? But nothing could be farther from the truth. I mean, the whole Bible is about God. The first verse of the first chapter of the first book opens with, in the beginning, God. The narrative, the narrative continues onward to the book of Revelation where we see that, sorry, the narrative continues onward to the book of Revelation where we see that it opens up once again with God as the book proclaims of itself the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The entire book is so saturated with God, the book of Revelation, that it even declares that one day the very sun which lights us will be done away with and replaced by the light of our God. God is at the center. From beginning to the end of the Bible, we see that God himself is the center of all things, and there's nothing mysterious about that. John MacArthur says about the book of Revelation, many people are confused about the book, viewing it as mysterious, bizarre, and indecipherable mystery. He goes on, but nothing could be farther from the truth. Far from hiding the truth, the book of Revelation reveals it. This is the last chapter in God's story of redemption. It tells how it all ends. The book of Revelation, therefore, is essential because it confirms two great truths. So no matter where you are, in the spectrum of understanding the Bible, it confirms two great truths. So if you're young or you're discipling somebody who's young and you say, read the book of Revelation and they're looking at you like a deer in the headlights, just say, know this when you read it and you'll be okay. That God is holy and worthy to be praised and that God is sovereign and in the control of all human history, Amen. clear. Bob Hartman aptly stated it this way, and this is a nice little jingle to kind of frame that for you forever. The fate of God's creation isn't subject to a man. The final consummation is according to his plan. And so as we proceed to our text, we see Christ himself at the forefront of the letter and he's addressing his churches before we see the climax, how the climax of all history will transpire. And this isn't a biblical stretch because Peter tells us, so we, we look at Revelation and we see that Jesus will first address the churches before he shows us how the rest of the world, how all of history will climax. Peter says, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, with us. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? There's the book of Revelation. Boom, chapters 1 through 3 and the rest of human history. So let's dive in. Concerning the background of the church at Ephesus, there's much to say, and for the sake of time, I will be brief. I'm going to (laughs) try. The city of Ephesus is much like all idolatrous Roman cities, except much, much more. From a religious standpoint, Ephesus was the center of worship of Diana. It was the most sacred goddess in the civilized ancient Greco-Roman world. And the temple to Diana was one of the seven wonders. And here, if y'all could turn to Acts 19 if you have a copy of the Bible. I want y'all to see this for yourselves. And I I think I'm using the NASB here, but I I copied the um, ESV so we could track together. So the Bible portrays Ephesus as so demonically charged that evil spirits were everywhere. So Acts 19. So we're looking at the church of Ephesus. We're going to the church of Ephesus, but I want to set the stage for why this is so significant, the text in Ephesus. Acts 19:11, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. And their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord, Jesus, over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize. Who are you? and the man in whom the evil spirit and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them mastered all of them and overpowered them wow so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus of Ephesus both Jews and Greeks and fear fell upon all them and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled also Many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. A number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them, and it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, is not in a vacuum. If anything else... Two points, and we don't even have to get to the end of this, but I want, I want to be clear how beautiful Scripture is. Now, hold that thought, what just happened in Ephesus. And it's basically saying they repented and they turned from idols to serve the living God. That's what just happened. And this is significant This is how significant it is that we see Scripture's unity and how Scripture upholds Scripture. Because all of us quote Ephesians two, we know it, but say Ephesians two was everything right? Oh no, no. Say Ephesians two was Southern Hills Baptist Church. So Southern Hills Baptist Church in this community, we had. A bunch of people who were in sorcery, playing with Ouija boards, looking at all the sorcery books, evil spirits were all around our community. You knew somebody that had an evil spirit. Say this was the people here in Southern Hills. And, and this letter is being read to y'all. And so now when we take this, this verse, Ephesians 2, we see, is everything all right? Okay, okay. Okay. Um. So we saw what was occurring in Acts 19. And so now, now keep in mind, keep your finger on Ephesians 2 and think of how, what these people must have been thinking as, as they were read aloud this letter. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which, you once, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and you know ephesians you all know, were children of wrath playing with their ouija boards and sorcery books and all that crazy stuff like the rest of mankind and imagine them hearing this for the first time but god being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins we know we weren't seeking for god made us alive together with christ by grace You have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I can imagine how real that must have been to hear that. You were children of wrath, sons of disobedience. You've been saved by grace. So we keep that, keep our finger on that as we proceed to our text of the church in Ephesus, right? The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the Son of Man pictured in the vision in chapter 1. The Lord is the speaker and he's speaking to his church. He opens and so um, as the Lord speaks, we see proceeding to verse 2 what is commonly called as the commendation. It's the commendation, and that's verses 2 through 3 and 6. Now imagine what we just read in the preceding chapters and try to imagine once again the scenario. You have a bunch of people in magic arts and sorcery worshiping false idols. You have them turn to the living God, and now you receive this letter decades later, and the, the messenger says to you, Jesus is speaking, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. That's right, we don't. But have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and have found them to be false. Remember that guy that was trying to cast out demons in Jesus' name? I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake and you have not grown weary. So we see immediately that The Ephesian church receives a positive evaluation. They are a pure church. And this commendation has three significant virtues that we'll go through quickly. The first one is they toil. I know your works and your toil. Literally, to toil to the point of exhaustion. It refers to one spending, to a spending of oneself in arduous labor. Apparently, Ephesus was a busy, active church. It no doubt had all the ministry activities we normally associate with a church that is spiritual and passionate. They were diligent. Your toil and your patient, endurance. Endurance, the KJV renders it patience. The new American standard has perseverance. And the Lord is probably referring to their diligence in bearing the persecution and hostility of an unbelieving society. David alluded to that with the, the martyrs um, and how they endured. Despite the temptations which assaulted them from every quarter, they stood unswerving and firm in their allegiance to Christ. They worked hard and patiently endured the persecution and ostracism of their, at the hands of pagan fellow citizens. And if you read the whole account of Acts, you see that happening, and perhaps even relatives. Well, well that's nothing new because the Bible is full of examples of the importance of living exemplary lives and enduring persecution. I mean, James 1 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let your steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete. And you can read first and second Peter and see that faith and endurance is a big deal. I think here's where we can hit home here. So endurance is a big deal. But also, thirdly, they were orthodox. And I don't think I mentioned this. Um, I'll maybe say it now. But this is probably one of the most formative passages in in all of my, uh, this whole passage of the Church of Ephesus in all my Christian life of 20 years. They were orthodox. This was their most stellar achievement. No false doctrine could ever raise its ugly head in Ephesus. One of the ways that, that uh, orthodox manifested itself as they refuse to bear with men of evil inclination and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false they resented evil they resented sin they resented sin in the church They recognized the damage that sin does to the fellowship and the testimony. They saw that sin in the church destroys the unity of the church and destroys the testimony of the church. They hated all that was morally bad and spiritually bad. They knew it, as Jesus said, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Paul had told them in a letter that he wrote years before in the book of Ephesians, neither give place to the devil, and they didn't. They wanted nothing to do with that which was from Satan. They tested and tried those who claimed to be apostles. The evil men and the apostles are actually, it's a twofold reference to the same group of individuals. The former, the evil men, is a description of their disposition and the latter of their doctrine, apostles. They categorically rejected message and messenger of those that were evil. This was a discerning church. I believe that we're a discerning church. I've had many talks with y'all, and we are a discerning people, much like they. Verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you Repent. There is, however, a major concern, and I know some, when you read a lot of scholarship work on this, uh, they, they consider the first part of the letter the con- commendation, and the second, they say it's the condemnation. So the commendation, and I think that's just alliteration, and then the con- condemnation. Uh, I don't buy that. The Lord has not condemned them, but it is a grave concern he's stating after commending the church concerning their patience endurance and tolerance of evil suffering for christ's name and exposing of false apostles jesus confronts them although this church looked amazing amazing on paper he turns to one central issue but i have this against you that you have abandoned your first love they had zeal for orthodoxy but they had lost love for jesus they showed up for Bible studies and debated the heretics, but they lost their pure love for the Lord. They stood against evil in the midst, in their midst, but tolerated a sluggish love towards Jesus, a cold orthodoxy. Now, I don't want to get tangled in the weeds, but I do briefly want to mention there's a debate in scholarship, likewise, on who the first love is. Has anybody heard that debate on who the first love is in this passage? Yeah, I I, I didn't either, studying for it, and I say, wow, there's a lot of confusion on this. And so I'm just going to give a couple examples, and I think it's important that I say why I'm doing this, too. Sam Storm says, the words do not make it clear whether first love, which they had abandoned, was love for Christ or for their fellow Christians, but both may be in view. G.K. Beale states, although they were ever on guard to maintain the purity of apostolic teaching, The Ephesian Christians were not diligent in witnessing to the same faith in the outside world. This is what is meant when Christ chastises them for having left their first love. The point is not primarily that they had lost their love for one another, as argued by most commentators. Moffat translates this actually, you have given up loving one another as you did at first. Nor is the point merely that they had lost their first love for Christ in general. The idea is that they, they no longer expressed their former zealous love for Jesus by witnessing to him in the world. So outreach. And so I see a lot of Christian books like that and I, that's not right. We need to have a high Christology. We need to look at what, what the text is saying. And the reason I belabor this point is because I want you to know who it is so when you read this, and I want you to be confident. I want you to be confident in what you read, and I want you to be confident in those who teach you. So I'm going to give you some biblical evidence why this is nobody else but Jesus, that first love. From the Old Testament, let's just start there. Uh, Jeremiah 2, and if we survey the Old Testament, we see betrothal language, first love language. Ezekiel chapter 2 says, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord and the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were guilty and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. And from Jeremiah we have this. Later I passed by and when I looked at you I saw that you were old enough for love. I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered you. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the, the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. The Lord goes on to, show, to share how he bathed you with water and washed, you, washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because the splendor I had given you. But you trusted in your beauty and you used your fame to become a prostitute. This is graphic language, of leaving a loving relationship with the Lord. But it's undeniable that the Lord has in view a loving relationship where affection should never grow cold. Okay. Let me say these two points real quick. And, um, but most importantly, those are Old Testament passages of why we see that, that first young love. Uh, but I want you to see when you read the book of Ephesians and you go to other passages like this in Romans, why significant? If you want to know who the first love is, if if it's ever questioned to you or or you just sit there and think, huh, maybe there is some truth to that point, the answer is right here. Scripture um, interprets Scripture. If y'all would turn to Ephesians chapter 6 and just read the last verse with me. I love this because who's the first love? And I know I didn't have to convince many of y'all, but I I want y'all to be clear. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. The NIV translates it, grace to all who love our Lord Jesus with an undying love. King James says grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus in sincerity. The last command to the church of Ephesus, was love Jesus Christ with an undying love. Love him with a love that can't be corrupted. Love him in true sincerity. The Ephesians no doubt had memorized, when I mean, we memorized scripture, they had no doubt memorized that it is important for us to love Jesus with an undying love. It's not questioned to them when, when they hear in the book of Revelation, when that letter has come to them and says you've lost your first love, it, it, I'm sure it clicked. We were to love you with an undying love. We were to love you with a love that was incorruptible. Yes, we're orthodox. Yes, we believe these things, but that was our command. But the nail in the coffin for this, of Jesus being the first love of the church and of us, I think is in Revelation, in our passage, Revelation 2.7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So to the Jewish people in the audience and to all the Gentiles that are reading the Old Testament, wait a minute. The tree of life in the paradise of God, that, that's Genesis, isn't it? Isn't that the story of our first parents and their first relationship? with us there's a first love element there is first man and God in that perfect relationship they would know that garden tree language so the indictment is significant to this church they privately were abandoning Christ in their public crusade for truth about Christ they were exchanging Christ himself for theological images of their savior. I think I've done that before. I think I have exchanged Christ. In fact, I challenge people all the time when I disciple them. I'm like, Christianity isn't just having a Christian worldview. Christianity is 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 not being a pilot and asking the what and looking at the who. It's following the person. Greg Moore speaks about it this way from a personal perspective, I love this. He says, I have even dressed up my desertion in religious robes. I might refuse discipline by calling it legalism. Refuse God's presence by calling it freedom. Refuse to commune with him calling it salvation by grace. Christ's blood becomes that, Christ's blood becomes that which was shed so that I might safely ignore him. I've been there, we've all been there. Christ's blood was shed so that I can just kinda relax. Leaving your first love. Remember therefore, verse five, therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus was going to remove their lampstand if they continued to sled down the hill. But Jesus loves his church and has compassion towards his faintly burning wicks. He desires to turn that flicker to the flame again. So Jesus counsels them in three ways. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do works which you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So briefly, I'm gonna have some application and close. We see the evaluation, they were an amazingly pure church, the diagnosis but, just like earlier in Ephesians, it's the flip of Ephesians 2, they were worldly but God intervened, do you see that? Ephesians 2 says, you were worldly, you were sons of disobedience, children of wrath, but God came and Christ saved you. And now it's flipped. Now he's saying, y'all are amazing, you do everything right, but you're missing the boat. But you left your first love. So, this is how beautiful Jesus is to all of us as Christians. We see the evaluation, we see the diagnosis, and now the prescription for remedy. Number one, remember. The first step God calls us to is surprising because it's just remember. It's not some great spiritual feat for giants. It's merely the act of a child looking back to former days. So I had to ask myself these questions. Do I remember the time when God first awakened my soul? Do I remember the excitement I had when he plucked me out of darkness and transferred me into the kingdom of his dear son? How joyful when I was aware that I went from an orphan to a son, from a dead sinner to a resurrected saint, from an enemy with God to his beloved. You know, I think one of the, one of the craziest passages in all of Scripture, one that, and there's so many that are so mind-blowing but Ephesians, I think it's 2, 13 and 14 where it, where it says, "No, oh, I'm in revelation." <laughs> I'm in revelation. Um, let's see. Ah, see, I didn't have this one in my notes. Anyway, he speaks of, but now Christ afar off." Oh, yeah. Ephesians 12, the last part where it's, it speaks of those that are away from God. And it says, having no hope and without God in this world. And you look at lost people and they say, hey, have, uh, I'm sorry, I don't want to run on, but I want to say this. Have you ever met lost people that listen to a lot of country music and they've got like a country music Jesus and they, something, they say something like this, I don't know if I'm going to get the job, but Lord willing, I'll get it. And you know what I think to those people that I don't want to say, but I don't want to get fired or I don't want to get in a fight? When they say, Lord willing, I'll get it. I'll say, the Lord's not willing. He's my Lord. I'm his son. He wills for me. The only thing he wills for you is to repent. He wills nothing else but for you to repent. I pray as a son. And he answers, Lord willing, I'll get that job. And he wills. Whatever he wills, but he wills for us as his children. But to the lost world, it says they are without hope in God in this world. That's frightening. I mean, you look at all the lost people and you sit there and think as you're driving, as you drive home, like, that might, they might be without hope in God in this world. And they're driving like they're just going to lunch, Did you once run to prayer not to take your daily dose of spiritual medicine, beloved, but because your great love waited for you? These are questions I ask myself. Did you ever sing in silence with the psalmist, there's nothing I desire but you? Remember quiet mornings of choosing the good portion as you sat at his feet? Now you kinda want, Now you kind of see why Mary and Martha, that whole scenario, huh? Remember the glory that you saw and the Savior that you sang to when you were filled with joy unspeakable. Remember, number one. Number two, from the conviction that comes realizing you were once, from the conviction that comes from realizing where you once stood, repent. You have left Jerusalem for Egypt, the promised land for Canaan, Don't just try to do better next time. Don't feel guilty and hide behind the wall of good intentions. Go to your savior in the blood of his son and cry out for mercy. Confessing your coldness to him and asking him for grace. Tell him you've grown cold. Tell him you've entertained other lovers. Repent to your God for not loving him as he deserves. Oh man, he stands ready to forgive and restore. Your high priest will sympathize with you. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace to find that we may obtain mercy and find grace. Stand in awe of forgiveness. One of my favorite illustrations. I was 22 years old when I got saved, and I remember reading this book by R.C. Sproul where he talks about Martin Luther. It's not the holiness of God, because I've read that a, a, a thousand times. In fact, I always tried looking for this quote. But it's the story of Martin Luther after his conversion. He'd go into the cathedrals and he'd look up at the cross and he'd say over and over, for me, for me? He would just say that over and over. He couldn't believe it. For me? For me, he stood in awe of forgiveness. And most importantly, return. I love this. God calls us to return from where we once fell. He does not call us to make up for lost time and be a mile ahead of where we were. He calls us back to that fresh fire of love towards him. It's a call to action. Jude 21. I mean, Scripture interprets Scripture. Everything i said could be said right here in Jude 21. It is a command to keep ourselves in the love of God. Jude 21. Hosea, and I'll wrap this up. Hosea 14:1 through4 says, "Return, O Israel to the Lord, your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words. Oh. I apologize. Okay, I'll turn to Hosea. I think I ran out of notes or something happened. so we don't have a printer i had to get that printed up at home depot and they printed front to back you know how confusing that is when you have to do this Mm -hmm. (laughs) oh well okay thank you for bearing with me returning o israel return o israel to the lord your god for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously, that we may present the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again, our God, to the work of our hands, our diligence, ourselves. I love this, for in you the orphan finds mercy. And the Lord says, I will hear, heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. Our Lord summons us to love freely. He will love us freely. You know, I said this is one of the most formative passages in my, in my life, um, my Christian life, because it reminds me and probably many of you, I know some of you, I've spoken with you well over 25 27 years because it reminds a hard-headed guy like me it reminds a guy like me who clenches his fist and bears his teeth down at people that blaspheme jesus that take his name that 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 say things about him that aren't true i love orthodoxy i love it it reminds guys like us that love holiness, that draw a line in the sand, like Pastor Lawson would say. He's draw a line in the sand and tell sin and evil, do not cross the bar, not welcome, do not enter. It tells hard-headed guys like me that 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 can drive the Christian ship and boat and toil and endure, guys like you, women like you who, who love this, that at the end of it. I don't want to be like Pilate. I don't want to have all the truth in the world and face it and miss Jesus. I don't want to ask the what to the who. I just want to look at the Christ. You are worthy. We sang that today. Thank, man, Gary, I just gave him the the list of songs and he did a better job than I could have recommended. Thank you, brother. And so as we close in prayer, I'd just like to say Jesus Christ, If I just opened my Bible and said, Jesus Christ, that's enough. It really is. If we came here and that's all we said, Jesus Christ, we could all affirm beautiful, worthy to be praised, to be loved. Let's pray.